one day, Chicken Little was running about, and a leaf happened to fall upon her tail, and this terrified her. Why would this happen? Something must be wrong. Surely this is a precursor to disaster. Before you know it, Chicken Little had disturbed all the other animals in the neighborhood by proclaiming that the sky is falling. Now, of course, Chicken Little is a children's story. It's actually one of many similar tales found across the globe. And I really think that this story teaches kids about worry. Because Chicken Little was clearly an anxious chicken. Who other than an anxious person would see the smallest thing out of place and assume that a catastrophe was at hand, right? And in this story, Chicken Little's worry spirals into fear, and her fear spirals into mass panic, and ultimately it ends with disaster. Most of us don't know how this story ends. I was shocked yesterday. I did a survey of family members, and none of the people in my family knew how the story of Chicken Little ends. A fox manipulates Chicken Little to bringing all the animals into his den where they will be safe from the falling sky, and the fox then has a several course dinner. This story may seem like a really odd place to start a sermon, but I think this story illustrates a truth that everybody knows and that many of us still struggle with, which is that anxiety is unwise. And yet even though we know this, anxiety abounds. Psychologists claim that one in eight Americans evidence some form of what they call an anxiety disorder at any given time. And based on the last two decades, I would guess that is a massive underestimate. Because during the last 20 years, we have seen our nation captivated by various fears, haven't we? The fear of terrorism, of COVID, of police, of rioters, of right-wing politicians and agendas, or of left-wing politicians and agendas. Everybody seems to be afraid of something, right? That's why in the last decade we have seen massive runs on gold, on guns, and on toilet paper. And what may seem to one person to be a chicken little style fear may seem to another person to be a very rational concern. But no matter how rational or irrational our anxieties may be, fear reigns. And you know, fear and anxiety aren't just out there somewhere. We all at times have sleepless nights because we get worried about our health, or our jobs, or our finances, or our aging parents, or our children's health, or future, or spiritual life. We may know that anxiety is folly, and yet we still find ourselves ensnared by it. And I've got to tell you, this is a great area of personal struggle for me. Sarah will probably be very happy to tell you, I way too often find my mind running away with some worry or the other. And so today I think I'm preaching to myself even more than I'm preaching to you. But friends, anxiety is a big problem, and we're going to see today that it's a grievous sin, because anxiety evidences a wrong view of God, a wrong view of God's loving care for His people, and when we indulge in anxiety, it reveals that we are prioritizing the wrong things. So that's where we're going this morning as we continue our look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. And in these verses, what we're going to see today is that Jesus basically gives us three commands uh, related to anxiety, which form the three points of this sermon. 
First, Jesus tells us to stop being anxious because we have a good and a sovereign heavenly father. Second, Jesus tells us to prioritize a better master and agenda than anxiety would have us to serve. And third, Jesus tells us that we need to live day by day and not let our minds run away with worries about tomorrow. So let's start with our first point, in which Jesus makes a complex argument that really boils down to one idea. Stop being anxious because, believing friends, we have a good and sovereign Heavenly Father. Now, Jesus builds his argument using a rhetorical structure called a chiasm, which is basically like a rhetorical sandwich, okay? So imagine you've got a sandwich with two pieces of bread, and inside you've got two pieces of cheese surrounding a piece of meat. I think that's basically what this passage is like. The two outermost parts of this passage go together. They're like the bread. Verses 25 and 31 are closely related. The next most outer portions also go together. Verse 26 is very similar to verses 28 to 30. And right in the middle is verse 27. So we're going to go through these verses in that order, working from the outside of the argument to the inside. Jesus begins in verse 25. He says, therefore, he's pointing back to the passage we looked at last week, in which he warned against the dangers of materialism. You might remember last week we saw that Jesus tells us materialism misdirects our hearts and it darkens our souls and it enslaves us to the wrong master. And in consequence of that instruction, in consequence of the truth that we must serve Christ rather than the false god money, in consequence of the truth that the only treasure which is worth pursuing, the only treasure that really endures is eternal reward and not the stuff of this world. In light of all of that, Jesus now says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Jesus commands his disciples not to be anxious about their lives. I think there's two things to note here. First, in Greek, the tense of the command in verse 25 carries the idea of ongoing action. I think this indicates that Jesus is addressing a problem that he perceives is currently running amok among his disciples. His disciples are anxious. And we saw why last week. Because they were materialistic. And now these money-minded people find themselves away from their jobs and their homes. They're traveling the countryside with Jesus, who we're going to see in chapter 8, has nowhere to lay his head. And so these men are caught in attention they are materialistic, but they are experiencing material deprivation. And we'll see evidence of that later in this book. Because in chapter 19, Peter is quick to say to Jesus, We have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? This concern about possessions was a real worry for the disciples. And so Jesus told them last week, Stop pursuing worldly treasure. And now he says, Stop being anxious about your material needs. And as he says this to them, I want you to see a second thing here. How does Jesus frame the disciples' anxiety? He says, don't be worried about your lives. But then he reveals the way that they are thinking about their lives. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? It's all about material concerns. See, they see their lives as indistinguishable from their material position. Do they have their basic needs covered? That's a good life. Otherwise, that's a bad life. We can be like this too, right? If we have our needs met, 
if we can pay our bills, if we put food on the table, we think, well, everything's just fine. The rest is secondary. In the same way, I bet many of us think about where our lives are and where our lives are headed solely in terms of money. Do I have enough saved? How close am I to retirement? The checklist for our lives often winds up being a material checklist. And when we're worried that we may soon lack financial security, I think that's when we most start to worry. When we think, oh, I might lose my job. I don't know how I'm going to pay the note or the rent. When we think that our current financial position gives us little reason for optimism in the future, that's when anxiety rears its head, right? But Jesus says to his disciples, don't worry about the material needs that you have for your life. Now, you may say, well, Jesus, you don't understand. I have a lot of mouths that are dependent on me to feed. I am in a precarious position. Worry is reasonable. But, friend, whatever position you're in today, I guarantee that the people who Jesus initially said these words to 2,000 years ago were in a lot worse position than you're in. Because, for starters, they lived in an ancient society, which had a lot less security than we enjoy today. And so their concerns were different than ours. Most of us today are not worried about uh, whether we're going to be eating lunch. We may worry about what we'll eat, but not if we'll eat. And yes, there are some hungry people in our society today, but there are food banks and shelters. In the ancient world, such things did not exist. Back then, even if you weren't poor, the food supply was uncertain. Food was dependent upon a handful of local farmers and the weather. Famine or drought or locusts could spell starvation for entire communities. Eating was an uncertain proposition. In the same way, worrying about clothing probably seems like a foreign concept to us. In the ancient world, people often slept outside, and the clothes that they would wear would deteriorate, being exposed to the elements. They could get sick. And so clothing was a high-priority item, like we think about shelter today. And again, back then, there weren't goodwill stores. There wasn't minimum wage. If your clothing was falling apart and you were poor, getting a new set was an expensive proposition. So if nothing else, the people that Jesus is talking to here would be in a lot worse position than we are in, simply because of the difficulties of their time and their culture. But on top of that, Jesus' primary audience here are his first group of disciples, the people who would face the dangers that came with being the very first to proclaim the gospel to a hostile world. These disciples would later experience the life that Paul described in 2 Corinthians 11. I was in danger from rivers, from robbers, from my own people, from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. All of that to say this. If in the whole history of the world there was anybody who had a reason to be worried about their material needs, it was Jesus' disciples. The very people to whom Jesus here says, don't be worried about these things. And if Jesus says that to them, What would he say to us today about the things that worry us? Friends, anxiety about material things is not appropriate for believers in Jesus. That's what he says at the start of this section and at the end. Look at verse 31. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? 
Brothers and sisters, again, we are not to think like this. We are not to be consumed with worry about material things. But why? Why should we not be worried about these things? After all, life is pretty unpleasant if you don't have nice clothes and you don't have any food and you don't have any money. Why should the, the prospect of losing these things not make us anxious? Maybe it's going to be because Jesus will tell us that God will give us everything we ever wanted if we just have enough faith. Maybe it's because he's going to say to us, you all need to take a vow of poverty. Do you guys think that's what it is? No. The reason we don't need to be anxious is because anxiety is premised on the idolatrous mindset of materialism, that our lives basically equal our possessions. But now Jesus is going to expose that mindset as totally false. And he's going to show us how we should instead think about our possessions, our lives, and about the God who is sovereign over all of these things. And he begins by asking a question at the end of verse 25. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, at first it sounds like Jesus is saying, you are more than your net worth. And that's true. Uh, whether you're rich or middle class or poor, uh, your value is not in what you have or what you lack. But Jesus here is saying more than just your life is more than the sum total of your possessions. Because when this Greek word translated more is followed by a noun with the particular construction we find here, usually this is making a qualitative argument rather than a quantitative argument. So what's that mean? Jesus is not saying here the value of your life exceeds the value of your possessions. What he's saying is your life is much greater and more significant than stuff like food and clothing. And this establishes where Jesus is going to go in the next layer of his rhetorical sandwich. Because Jesus is going to make an argument like this. Your life is greater than your food or your clothing. But if God is gracious enough to care about and provide for something as insignificant as food or clothing, then how much more must God care about and be involved with the biggest issues that we have in our lives? And if God is so invested in our lives that he cares for us like that, then there's no need for us to ever be anxious. I think that's the logic. And Jesus makes this point now with another pair of closely connected arguments, first in verse 26 and then in 28 to 30. Now in these verses, Jesus is going to give some examples that come from nature that prove that God cares about and meets his people's material needs. It's interesting that Jesus draws these examples from nature because, of course, Paul said that God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Nature testifies to the attributes of God. And here Jesus tells us that two of God's attributes that we can learn about by watching nature are God's sovereignty and God's goodness. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now, birds get hungry just like we do. Yet they don't farm. And yet they eat all the same, right? And how? Because God feeds them. God created the bird. God hardwired the bird to know how to find some food. And God, in his kindness and sovereignty, makes sure that when birds go out to eat, most of the time they find some worms. So God feeds the birds. You say, well, what's that have to do with me? Look at verse 26. Are you not of more value than they? 
if God sovereignly and faithfully makes sure that little birds have what they need to survive, if their fate is not up to chance but is governed by the hand of God, then Jesus says to believers, to those who can truly call God our Heavenly Father, how much more should we know that our lives are not dependent on chance or on external circumstances? Friend, your life is not contingent on your boss's temperament or on your company staying afloat or on the strength of the dollar or on the right guy winning the election. What determines our fate, what determines whether we have food on our table, is that there is a real and a personal God who is sovereign over all things and who rules over your life and mine. And if God loves and provides for little birds believing friends, Will our Heavenly Father not provide also for us? Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Friend, if you have come to Christ in repentant faith, trusting in Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection, you need to know that God has sovereignly chosen you from before history began. You need to know that God loves you. You need to know that He has adopted you into His family. You need to know that He has made you a co-heir alongside Christ Himself and that He has put His Spirit in you. He has truly given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You are not like some bird that's here today and gone tomorrow. You are the sons and daughters of the Most High. As Romans 8 says, If the Father did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Believer, you don't need to be fretting about whether you're going to have a job or a house or a paycheck or where your next meal's coming from because if God cares enough about you to send Jesus to die for you, if God takes care of little animals that are of far less value to Him than you are, then friends, He's going to meet your needs. And I bet every one of us could talk about some time in the past when, when God did that, when He worked out circumstances in our life that seemed insurmountable, and then in some surprising way He made ends meet for us. Or He gave us something far beyond anything we ever could have expected or hoped for. And our church just had an experience like that, right? God is faithful and He is kind to His people. In the same way, look at verse 28. Jesus says, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Now, Jesus is preaching outside, and we don't want to get too imaginative here, but there would have been many potential visual aids on the mountain that Jesus could have chosen from. And he chooses some flowers, perhaps because there were some nearby. And he says, they neither toil nor spin. Their flowers don't manufacture clothing. And yet, verse 29, he says, I tell you, even Solomon... In all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon was the richest king in the history of Israel, right? The Old Testament doesn't tell us exactly what he wore. But you better believe it was nice, right? Solomon wasn't shopping off the rack, you know? And, and yet, Jesus says as amazing as Solomon's wardrobe was, it's nothing compared to the beauty of a simple flower. And here's his point, verse 30. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? If Almighty God, who by his sheer power spoke all things into being, if he who sustains every atom in this universe by his merest thought took the time to make sure the grass looks nice, what will he not do for his own people, those for whom Christ bled and died? You know, the, the grass and flowers Jesus talks about here are often used in the Bible as a picture of that which doesn't live long. In Isaiah 40, we read that the grass withers and the flower fades. James 1 says the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls and its beauty perishes. But if God is so invested in that which lives for such a short time that he still bothers to make it look beautiful, how much more will God be invested in those who are to live for the rest of eternity? Believers, we aren't short-lived like the grass. We won't be cast into the fire like the unbeliever. We will live forever in the very presence of God. And if that is God's intention for us, ought we not expect that he will treat us far more kindly than he treats the grass? Can we not trust that he will give us sufficient grace and provision to meet every situation that he allows us to face? See, the examples of the bird and the grass direct our attention to the character of God. And as we reflect on God's faithful and generous love as seen in creation, then friends, we must not be anxious. We should be encouraged because if this is how God takes care of the seemingly insignificant parts of nature, will he not take care of us? Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say in chapter 7, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know, in our broken world, there are lots of lousy fathers who don't provide for their kids. But many of us have had kindly fathers, right, who did give us good gifts. And Jesus says, if deeply sinful people are able to deal kindly with their children like that, how will our perfect heavenly father take care of his adopted sons and daughters? He will provide for us. And so we don't need to worry about how it's all going to work out. Now, this all leads now to G the central part of Jesus' argument. He's told us not to worry. He's told us why we shouldn't worry, pointing us to the Father's kindness and sovereignty. But now Jesus gives us one more statement explaining why we shouldn't worry in verse 27. He says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? I think this one statement points us to two realities that together form another devastating argument against worry. First, Jesus says our worry is absolutely worthless. It doesn't accomplish anything. And that's what we can see from the big picture of this verse, right? Now, the details of exactly what verse 27 means are less clear. In the most literalistic level in the Greek, Jesus says that our anxiety does not add one cubit to our span. Some scholars think this is a statement that means we can't add to our height. Others think this is a metaphorical statement that says we cannot extend the, uh, the, the length of our lives, which in the Bible is sometimes described using spatial measurements. Either view is possible, although I think Jesus is probably talking about the length of our lives here. But what Jesus says is this. You can worry and worry and worry, and all that worry won't increase the length of your life by one millisecond. In fact, doctors will tell you it'll probably shorten your life, right? 
But here's the idea. Worry doesn't achieve anything useful. Whatever you stress about won't be changed by your choice to worry about it. So why bother worrying? Especially when we consider the second truth that we can draw from this verse. Which is that while our efforts cannot increase how long we live, there is someone who has power over that. God is sovereign over our lifespan and even over our height, right? God isn't just sovereign over the lesser matters of food and clothing. He's sovereign over the biggest issues that we face, like how long we live. Later in this book, Jesus will tell us that God is sovereign over every detail within creation. Matthew 10, not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Not only does God feed the birds, he decides how long they're going to live for. And if God demarcates the lifespan of a bird, if God decrees how many hairs get to stay on your head at any one time, then we've got to understand God is totally sovereign over everything that happens to us in this life. The Bible tells us God is sovereign over how long we live and what happens to us. Psalm 139 says, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And because of this then, worry is pointless. Because our worry achieves nothing positive, and because every matter that we could worry about ultimately rests securely in the hand of the Father who loves his children. And so, friends, we have absolutely no reason to worry about our material needs, our lives, or our health, or our possessions, because all these matters are controlled by God. And I think that's the argument of verses 25 to 31. But we're not yet finished with our first point, because Jesus follows this up with one final argument about why we must not worry. Look at verse 32. In many ways, I think this is the most personally painful argument for those of us who like to worry. He says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. Now, here the word Gentile basically means pagans or unbelievers. And we said last week that unbelievers are materialists. They have to be. They don't have anything else to hope in other than money and possessions. So that's what they pursue. And Jesus says they seek after these things, after food and clothing and money. And this verb seek is very intense. Basically, Jesus is saying that unbelievers' lives are governed by the frantic, intense pursuit of possessions because they believe that possessions are the most real and consequential thing in existence, that possessions determine all. But this materialism is a double-edged sword because not only do unbelievers have to scramble to get wealth, they also have to scramble to keep it. Materialism drives them to anxiety. But Jesus now says, believer, you need a different perspective than that mess. Because verse 32 says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Our lives are not governed or determined by how much money we have or the difficulty of the circumstances that we are facing. Friend, your life is governed by the heavenly Father, and he knows what is going on with us. He knows better than we do what we truly need, and he alone has the power to meet our every need. And so we must trust him. This is actually the second time in this chapter that Jesus has pointed us to this truth that God is so involved in our lives, he already knows what we need. And both times Jesus made this point, he made it in a contrast between believers and unbelievers. 
A contrast that shows unbelievers' frantic, anxious desperation and a call for us to be a people of sobriety and quiet trust. If you've got a Bible open, look back at verses 7 and 8. Here Jesus tells us that unbelievers pray by heaping up repetitious phrases because they feel distant from any sort of spiritual reality or power. They need to cajole something out there to help them, they think. So they use a ton of words in their praying. But in contrast to that paganism, friends, our Father isn't distant and uncaring. He doesn't need us to cajole Him into paying attention to us. On the contrary, He is watching your life so closely, He already knows what you need before you even ask Him. In the same way here, unbelievers may scramble after possessions, but your Father knows your situation better than you do. He knows what you need, and we can trust Him to meet our needs. And so believing, friends, ultimately... This is why we must not worry, because of our Father's good and faithful character. And if we truly understand and believe what Jesus tells us here about the Father's care for our lives, then when our lives experience major changes, we won't just despair and fall into anxiety. We will respond with faith, because that's the right response to what Jesus discloses about the Father's character. Now, four times the Bible tells us the righteous will live by faith. We who belong to God through the gospel are to be people who have trust in God's omnipotent power and His loving care for us. But anxiety is the diametrical opposite of this. Anxiety is living like an unbeliever, acting like there's not a God who's in control overall, acting like He's not sovereign over the circumstances of our life, acting like He doesn't care for us or faithfully provide for us. Friends, that's, that's blasphemy. The God who gave his own son because he, he calls us to salvation loves us and cares for us, but anxiety can just so quickly take our eyes off of reality and overpower us with all of these lies. But friends, we must battle for faith because the root of anxiety is unbelief, D.A. Corson says, and that's right. And anxiety is a profound insult to our kindly Father because it ignores the testimony of Christ and of Scripture and of nature. And it says, God doesn't love me like he says he does, that God's a liar. And that is an affront to God. And that's why Jesus says to his anxious disciples in verse 30 that they are people of little faith, because anxiety is an expression of faithlessness. And so, friends, we must war against anxiety. And the way that Jesus tells us to do that here is by turning our eyes away from our needs and meditating on the goodness and the power of God. And to let those truths encourage us to trust Him no matter what situation we're in. Now I know the first point was really long, don't worry, it's by far my longest point. But before I move on, I've got to deal with two more practical matters quickly. Number one, does the fact that God promises to meet our material needs mean that we don't have to work? Can we just kick back and put up our feet and say, God, you're going to miraculously bail me out and pay all my bills, right? No, because work is a sacred duty that God entrusted to humanity in the garden. And we are to work, friends. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, Work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. If we're able to, work is something we're all to engage in, whether it's in the home or the office. And laziness is sin. And if we imagine that we can use this promise to compel God to work a miracle on our command, friends, that is putting God to the test, imagining that he will give us a command performance and enable our sin. And that is a terrible thing that God will judge. 
So no, friends, we must work. And as Colossians 3 says, we must work heartily. As for the Lord, work like Jesus is your boss because he is, and he will give you a performance review someday. All right, now let's consider a second question related to this text, which is how literally should we take this promise? When God says he will supply his people with food and clothing, does this mean that believers have never starved to death or always been nicely adorned? Is this a text that supports a prosperity gospel? I would say no. And, and you say, why? Well, because I've already told you that Jesus gave this promise to the disciples, the same disciples who lived that hard life that Paul lived. The same disciples to whom Jesus will say in Matthew 24, they will deliver you up to tribulation and they will put you to death. Okay, this verse is not a promise of a trouble-free life. Jesus suffered. Jesus' disciples suffered then and they have suffered throughout every generation of the church. And one way persecution has historically manifested itself is that persecutors inflict material hardship on believers. Believers are forced to go without. Paul experienced that in Philippians 4. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul says there are times when he faced hunger. But does Jesus not promise in Matthew 6 that God will give us food? How can we make sense of this? I think when we put this passage in the broader context of what the Bible says about the Christian life, what we learn is this. The Father is absolutely sovereign over everything that will ever happen to us. And sometimes, God allows his people to experience really hard things. Why? Because Genesis 50 tells us people want to do evil to us, but God turns that around and intends to do good to us through their evil schemes. Romans 8.28 says, For those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are the called according to his purpose. And what is the good that God means to produce in his people? The next verse tells us he means to conform us to the image of his son. And how's he, how does he do that? James 1 says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God means to accomplish his good work in us. And sometimes, friends, that means we will suffer and we will face hard times. And so I think against that backdrop, what we see in Matthew 6 is this. Not so much a promise that we'll have every material need always covered and that we'll never face discomfort. No. Instead, whatever circumstance God sees fit to put us in, whether a nice peaceful circumstance or the raging hardship of persecution, wherever we wind up, the Father will faithfully and kindly give us whatever we need to endure that situation so that we accomplish the purpose he means for us to accomplish, to glorify him and to be more conformed to Christ's image. So I think when we read this promise in the context of the rest of the Bible, what we see is that's what this promise is really about. And so because of that, because God is endlessly kind and faithful to his people, we don't need to be anxious. We need to look to our Father and trust that he will give us all that we truly need to accomplish his purposes in any situation, whether we know we need it or not. All right, now we come to our second point. And in this point, Jesus tells his people that we've got to prioritize the right master and we need to pursue the right agenda. God's people need to live in service to the Father and not serve materialism. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
This may be the most important verse in the entire Sermon on the Mount. And I say that because it's in this one verse that all the major ideas of chapter 5 and 6 come together. It's here that Jesus has been pushing for uh, throughout the last two chapters. And we'll see how that is as we work through this verse. But the first thing I want you to see is the first word here, which is but. In contrast to the worldview of the Gentiles, the worldview of materialism that begets anxiety, now Jesus tells us where we ought to focus, what we ought to be about. We are to seek something. And we just saw in verse 32 that unbelievers frantically seek possessions. But we also are to seek something. Now here Jesus uses the same verb he just used to describe the pagans, but this time the verb lacks a prefix that indicates intensification. So yes, we are to pursue things, but we're not to pursue what Jesus tells us to pursue here in the same way that unbelievers clutch and seek after money. Right? We're not in the chaotic rat race seeking the golden dream of materialism. Rather, what Jesus calls us to pursue here is something that we pursue in a disciplined and an orderly way. And what does he tell us to pursue? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now the idea of God's kingdom is probably the biggest theme in the whole gospel of Matthew. And the idea is this. God reigns over everything. But this fallen world resists God's rule. And yet God means to impose his dominion over this world. And this phrase, the kingdom of God, refers to the collision, the outbreaking of God's heavenly rule on earth. And that Started with Jesus, right? When Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, the kingdom began to appear in a nascent form because Jesus is the king. But while God's kingdom has begun and it has grown and expanded, it is not yet complete. We await for God to uh, perform a decisive act in the future of human history when Christ will return and he will usher in the kingdom in its fullness. And so that's what Matthew means when he talks about God's kingdom. And here Jesus tells us to pursue that kingdom. What does he mean? Well, if the kingdom means the rulership of God, then Jesus is telling us to submit to God instead of some other master. We saw this last time, right? In chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. The triune God stands as a sovereign who demands our total allegiance but there are other false masters who would seek to rule over us, who are totally incompatible with the living God, like materialism. You cannot serve materialism and God. You've got to choose. And so Jesus says, submit to the Father. Now perhaps you need to hear this today because you have never come to the Father through the Son. And if that's you today, you need to know that you remain dead in your sins. You are chasing a lie. You are being corrupted and enslaved by the endless pursuit of the vainglory of riches that will not endure. And what you need to do is turn from that false God and that false chase. You need to recognize you are on a collision course with the wrath of God. And that there is nothing on this earth you can do to improve your situation other than turning in repentant faith to God through Jesus, who is God the Son in human flesh, who died to pay the penalty for your sin, and who has risen victorious over death. You need to cast yourself on him and become a part of his kingdom. But maybe today you do belong to the Father through Jesus. And yet Jesus, you're speaking to his disciples, says, this is for you. Seek God's kingdom. Maybe you already have a share in this as a believer, and yet as you live in this fallen world, you are tempted by the false allure of materialism. Friend, don't live like an unbeliever. 
Don't get caught chasing the things of this world that won't endure. Don't forget who you owe allegiance to. Pursue heavenly treasure, obey God, and humble yourself. Seek God's kingdom, Jesus says. And then he says, seek God's righteousness. What's that mean? Jesus has spent a ton of time in the Sermon on the Mount talking about righteousness. Often when we think about righteousness, we think about the condition that believers enjoy of being declared righteous by God. Paul talks about this a lot in Romans and Galatians. But we pointed out repeatedly in this series that when Jesus talks about righteousness in Matthew, he uses this word differently. When Jesus talks about righteousness, he's talking about the fact that God has ethical demands on your life. And he's asking, does your life correspond to God's demand or not? And so when Jesus tells us here to seek God's righteousness, he's telling us to pursue obedience to the ethical demands that God has written over our lives. The demands Jesus has revealed in the Sermon on the Mount. That God demands our obedience inwardly and outwardly, in deed and thought. Not like the Pharisees. The Pharisees played games of resembling outward obedience, but their hearts were far from him. And Jesus says in chapter 5, they will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That kind of righteousness totally fails God's standard. Instead, we see what that standard is in the last verse of chapter 5. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard is God's own moral perfection. That's why Jesus tells us to pursue God's righteousness, because he is the standard. And so believing, friends, how are we to live? Well, we saw in chapter 5, we're to be salt in this world. We are to be distinctive from the world. We are to be light in the darkened world, pointing unbelievers to the Father. We are to be people who are quick to make peace, who are sexually self-controlled, who fulfill our marital vows, who have simple and honest speech, who don't retaliate when we're wronged, who love everyone, even our enemies. We're not to pursue the applause of men, but we perform spiritual acts of devotion with an honest desire to glorify God alone. Friends, we are to be the people who truly want to know what God says and obey it. The beginning of chapter 5 says we are to be the people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the righteousness of God, the righteousness that characterizes God, and the righteousness that finds its source in God. For friends, if God's standard is his own righteousness, how can any of us ever hope to attain that without having it imparted to us by God himself? Only Jesus has perfectly obeyed the Father, such that he can say, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And Christ's righteousness is indeed imputed to those who believe. But Christ's righteousness in us produces righteous deeds of obedience. And friends, that is what we are to pursue if we belong to him. We are to be the people who are submitted to the rule of the Father through the Son. He is the master Jesus tells us to serve here. And we are to be the people who pursue obedience to the Father by adhering to the commands of the Son of God and the Word of God by the power of the Spirit of God. This is the agenda Jesus tells us to pursue. The same agenda that Paul tells us to pursue in Romans 12. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's the same thing Jesus is telling us to do here. Not to build your whole life about acquiring wealth, but pursuing obedience in thought and deed. This is the agenda that produces real lasting treasure in heaven. And so friends, we're to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. And Jesus says to do this first. What's this mean? 
We, the first part of every day we spend pursuing this and then we get to go pursue something else? Is that the idea? No. Because you cannot serve two masters. The idea here is not that we split time between God's kingdom and someone else's kingdom. The idea is that God's kingdom and God's agenda are our one and only priority, believing friends. And you might say, well, that sounds so extreme. It is. But Jesus demands our allegiance to this uncompromising standard. Now, that doesn't mean we become monks and withdraw from our society or our families. No. But as we live in this world as a spouse or a parent or an employer or an employee, in all these roles, we are to, to live in a way that is totally dedicated to obeying and glorifying God. But Jesus makes this demand in the context of another promise here. That as we prioritize the right master and the right agenda, God will see to it that the things that we need in order to fulfill his good purposes in us are added to us. In addition to the righteousness that he gives us, in addition to all of the grace and blessings and gifts that our kind father gives us, he will add to us the grace and resources that we need to face the challenge of each day. Again, this is not teaching prosperity theology. This is not saying, if I obey enough, God will become my genie and give me what I want. No. Jesus here speaks of God supplying our needs, not our wants. It tells us we don't need to worry about food and clothing because God will look after them, but it doesn't promise that we will endlessly eat foie gras and wear Versace. And besides that, we may not realize what we need correctly. We may think that we need a nice, easy path to retirement. God may say, I know you need a course of sanctification through hardship and through material deprivation. I'm not telling you God will make you rich, but I'm telling you God will accomplish what he means to accomplish in you, and he will give you the things to bring that to pass. And that's a promise. And in view of that, we should submit to him and obey his word. We come now to our last point in which Jesus tells us we've got to live day by day and not let our minds run away with worries about tomorrow. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. If we adopt a materialistic perspective about life, it's easy to be mastered by anxiety because we start to see the future as this mass of uncertainty that's filled with all the ways that things could go wrong for us. So many potential catastrophes ahead. We become chicken little. And those fears can fixate us on the future as we try to figure out how can I insulate myself from every way that this could go wrong. But Jesus says here, don't live like that. Don't face the future with this kind of anxious fear. Why? Well, Jesus has already given us a lot of answers. Because anxiety is pointless. Because you have a good and kind father. And in addition to that, Jesus now gives us one more reason not to obsess about the future. Which is that today has plenty of problems that require our attention. And if we only ever think about the future, we will fail to do what needs to be done today which is seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. That's how we make the best use of our lives, living day by day. And this is not the first time we've seen this in the Sermon on the Mount. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus said, pray for your daily bread. Say, why am I to just pray for today's bread? What about tomorrow's? Because Jesus is giving us a new mindset here, that life should be taken one day at a time. Trusting that God will give us what we need to get through today and that God will still be there to help us get through the trouble of tomorrow. We don't know what's coming down the pike and we don't need to. 
But God does. He knows what's coming. And he's got plans to help us through it already. So friends, let's just focus on today. Where are we compromising with the world at present? How can we redirect ourselves to the distinctive life Christ has called us to? How can we shine the light of the gospel into an unbeliever's life today? Where are we harboring sinful attitudes or walking in sinful ways? Ask God to supply your needs to show you how to navigate these sorts of issues each day and somehow he will meet your needs and worry about tomorrow when tomorrow happens. Now you might have trouble with that. The prospect of the future just may seem so daunting. You may say, things just look so bad. What should you do? Philippians 4 says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Turn your fears over to the Lord and pray with thanksgiving. Because as you give thanks, you will recite things where you know God has met your needs in the past and it will cause you to say, I can trust him again. And it will encourage you. So friends, tell God what's on your mind in prayer. 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You need to know that God is on the case in your life. And let that give you peace and consolation today. Let's wrap this up. We just looked at one of the major passages in the Bible about anxiety. We've seen that anxiety comes from the idolatrous worldview of materialism. That unbelievers are enslaved to materialism and therefore they become anxious. And so when we give ourselves to anxiety, we live like unbelievers. And friends, that is a foolish way for us to live. Because worry achieves nothing. And because, believing friend, you know the God who reigns over all things. And more than that, if you know Christ, you're part of his family. The God who kindly and faithfully takes care of the grass and the birds. The God who I'm sure at various points in your life has helped you make ends meet when you didn't know how it could happen. The God who loves you and who promises through the words of Paul in Philippians 4.19 to supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He will give us the grace and the provision that we need each day to face every circumstance that we face to accomplish his purpose for us. And we can trust him because he has powerfully shown us his faithfulness and his love for us by sending his own son to die on our behalf. So friends, look to your Father and have faith, moment by moment and day by day, and live to please Him and let Him take care of the rest.